Brian Coley here with a spotlight interview for The Constant Investor. And today it's Richard Dennis, the Chief Economist of the Australia Institute. And he's written a book called Curing Affluenza, How to Buy Less Stuff and Save the World. Um, and it's not just another environmental tome. It's really quite interesting. I suppose his central point is that uh, consumerism is different to materialism. Uh, and that consumerism has been sort of forced on the world by corporatism, by companies uh, looking to make money and do good marketing to uh, encourage people to buy stuff. And also he calls the idea that um, uh, that uh, consumerism, that is to say shopping for things we don't need um, and tend to throw away, the idea that that is uh, good for the economy is not only ridiculous, it's passing and won't last, it's unsustainable. So I think, uh, I suppose you'd call today for investors, this interview, a bit of a warning, really. I mean, he doesn't know when the the idea of consumerism will pass. He doesn't know when people will stop buying bottled water um, and other things they don't need. Um, but he is saying that it will eventually end. And apart from that, apart from its, its um, relevance to investors, it's just a really interesting discussion. So here's Richard Dennis about his book, Curing Affluenza. How to buy less stuff and save the world. Well, Richard, the, one of the central ideas in the book is this distinction you draw between consumerism and materialism. Um, but I was surprised to find that you actually approve of materialism while disapproving of consumerism. Perhaps you could explain that. Yeah, look, once upon a time, I guess I thought the words meant the same thing and I'd, I'd used them interchangeably for years. But when I sat down to write the book, I realised there's actually quite an important distinction between consumerism, which I say is the love of buying things, the actual act of the purchase, the, the thrill of the purchase, and materialism, which is the love of the object itself, the, the things we actually buy. Now, if we love something, if we cherish it, if we care for it, well, the idea of disposing of it, of just chucking it in the bin and replacing it should bring us pain, not joy. So, yeah, I argue, perhaps surprisingly for some in the book, that we, if, if we want to minimise the harm that our, all of our economic activity has on the economy, then we actually need to love our things, to cherish them, to repair them, to replace them. And, and when we don't need them anymore, put some effort into finding them a new home. So rather than feeling guilty about loving our boots or loving our car, I'm saying please love it. Love it for as long as you can. Look after it and delay the time that you need to replace it. Um, and if you do that, you can spend money on other things, make yourself happy, make, create jobs in some other part of the economy, uh, but don't, don't chuck out perfectly good things just because you feel like going shopping again. So uh, you just said another important thing, which is that um, it, you talked about harm to the economy, not harm to the planet, which is what people normally say when they're talking on this subject. What do you mean by that? Well, well I think we've created a false choice, a false binary between do you care about the environment or do you care about the economy and creating jobs for people? Well, I think most people, including myself, care a lot about both. But we've created a story for ourselves in the last couple of decades, and it's a new story. We've created a story that, uh, that the more quickly a country imports things and then throws them out and buries them in a hole, the wealthier the country gets. We've actually created a story that says the more we waste, the wealthier we get. Now, as an economist, that's, that's always seemed a bit odd to me. But again, it wasn't until I sat down to write the book that I kind of realised 
how widely spread this story is and indeed how easy it is to debunk. And all we need to realize is that every time we don't waste 500 bucks on something we don't need, if we go spend that $500 on uh, on, on buying breakfast, on, uh, on, on learning to dance, on learning to sing, on getting a math tutor for our kids. If we go buy services instead of wasting money on stuff, uh, the data suggests we'll create more jobs, not less. But we've got this debate in Australia that sort of says that if the retail sector is growing, then everyone's doing well. No, if the retail sector's growing, then the retail sector's doing well. But every dollar we spend on imported stuff that we don't really use is a dollar we didn't spend on the service sector or some other part of the economy. Now, Richard, um, part of the reason I wanted to talk to you, is, apart from the fact that it's an excellent and interesting book, um, is that I've been, on, I've been thinking about this a lot. I haven't written about it in my own columns um, at all, but I've been thinking about this stuff myself for quite a while now and, and worrying about it. And it just seemed to me that a big part of the problem which I'm not sure you do touch on in the book, a big part of the issue is the big decline in prices of manufactured goods as a result of China uh, coming into the world trading system 2001 or whatever. Um, and so that it's now perfectly feasible for people to chuck away their clothes and stuff they've bought fairly quickly because it's so cheap to replace it. Um, so what, do you think that's right? Oh, absolutely. And, and that's a fascinating question because on the one hand, things getting cheap is a great thing for an economist hearing that the, the cost of producing something and the price of buying something has fallen is a really great problem to have. But what I try to talk about in the book is that culture matters as much to our kind of spending decisions and shapes our economy as much as, as prices do. And what I mean by that is when the price of stuff fell, and it fell sharply thanks to incredible efficiencies in in the Chinese production process, when the price fell, then then we as consumers were faced with two choices. We could say to ourselves, wow, that's great. I'm going to buy the same amount of stuff for half the amount of money and then go spend the rest of the money I saved on something else. Or we could say, wow, the price of stuff has collapsed. I'm going to buy a lot more stuff. Now, as an economist, it's not obvious what the right answer to that question is, but as, as someone who is concerned about the way that our consumption patterns shape our culture and indeed harm our environment, imagine if we'd have taken all of those cost savings thanks to China and said, great, I'll, I'll buy the same amount of stuff I always bought, uh, I'll hang on to it for as long as I can, and I'm going to go spend the rest of the money on, on getting a massage or uh, on, on, on something else that gives me pleasure. So, yeah, as a society, we've kind of banked the savings of lower-priced imported goods. We've banked them by doubling down on importing the stuff rather than just simply enjoying the same amount of stuff at a much lower price. Well, it seems to me that culture you're talking about is directly comes from corporate capitalism um, and in particular, or well, you know, one of the... One of the great influences of this is, seems to me is Apple, which um, keeps producing new phones every couple of years and, and really enticing people to change their phones. And it kind of embeds this idea that you only keep stuff for two years. And Look, absolutely. And, and it's sort of a weird thing for an economist to write about. But, but I write a bit about culture in the book. 
because we just don't talk about it very much when we're talking about the economy. Now, this sounds like a strange example, but the easiest way to understand this is that the largest irrigated crop in America, and I think in Australia, but it's harder to find data, is lawn, grass. Now, why do Americans spend a fortune on lawn? Is it because lawn seed is cheap? Is it because lawnmowers are cheap? Or is it because culturally having a lawn is just what you do? Now, as an economist, I'd I'd suggest it's actually culture. People have a manicured lawn because their neighbours have a manicured lawn and their parents had a manicured lawn. So culture drives our demand for lawn seed. It drives our demand for fertiliser. It drives our demand for lawn mowers. Culture comes first, then the economic activity follows. Now, what you're saying is right. Culture has been changed by companies like Apple. Apple has actually succeeded in changing the way we think what normal is. We've actually changed our culture. Once upon a time, if you spent $1,000 on a phone, that's something that you'd have hung on to for life. Indeed, growing up, (laughs) we only had one phone in, in, in my house in my entire childhood. You know, no one really thought that we needed to, to, to actually go to the fancy push button phone when my old dial phone worked well. So, so Apple changed our culture very effectively. Uh, advertising is designed to change our culture. Government policy can influence culture. Um, but once we've changed culture, price kind of plays second fiddle. Indeed, that's why Apple's so profitable. And the other thing that seems to have, um, the economic fact that seems to have to me to have had a big influence on it is the declining price of oil, which has made plastic packaging so much cheaper. And at the same time, they've made the plastic packaging thinner so that there's less of it in the packaging. So uh, you talk a bit about in the book about uh, bottled water, which obviously is a fairly recent phenomenon, which is all about plastic packaging, it seems to me. Talk a little about, about that. Look, absolutely. Bottled water is is a brand new cultural idea. You know, growing up, I don't remember buying a bottle of water in my life. Uh, Now you see people spending a fortune on it. And indeed, when I read the business pages, I I read all about the different strategies that water, bottled water companies are employing to differentiate their water from other people's water. Um, The data on this is really quite interesting. Uh, The only dip I could find uh, in in bottled water consumption in the US, the only dip I could find occurred during the GFC, which makes sense. People were worried and their incomes were falling, so they bought less bottled water. But let's be clear, no one died of dehydration. This is an entirely culturally invented product. I used to work at a petrol station, and people used to complain about the price of petrol, no one ever complains about paying $10 a litre for water, even when they buy it at a petrol station. So culturally, we've learned that spending a lot of money on a plastic bottle with some water in it is, is, a, is, a, is a sensible thing to do. And when you look around and everyone else is doing it, then maybe it is. But once upon a time, men wore cod pieces. And presumably everyone thought that was a sensible idea because when they looked around, everyone else was doing it. I think history will judge the tens of billions of dollars we spend on bottled water, uh, I think they'll judge it as humorously as, as, as we judge expenditure on cod pieces uh, centuries ago. I'm not sure that you've done this in the book, but um, uh, this uh, the constant investor is obviously aimed at investors and uh, everyone's trying to think through what these kind of cultural, all sorts of cultural things and changes and trends mean for 
our investment portfolios. Have you given much thought to that? Look, I think that investors need to have an eye to what's going to happen. Uh, what's going to happen in my country, in in the world, uh, that's going to affect the, the the shares I own or the shares I might own. No one has a crystal ball on this. But what I would say is that the way we think about these things uh, is is not nearly as well. The way we the, the way we contextualise something like culture. Uh, is 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 trivial compared to its real power. So when you buy shares in a bottled water company, you're making a, a bet that the idea of spending ten bucks a litre on something you can get for free is not only a lasting idea but a growing idea, a, a, a fad that will grow in popularity. Now that might be a safe bet to make. I, I have no idea, but you're not buying bricks and mortar when you invest in a bottled water company. You're not buying intellectual property uh, in the product, but you are buying intellectual property in the brand. You're really just betting that consumer culture is such that that people, middle-class people, will just fork out a thousand bucks a year for something they could get for free. And when you think of it like that, that's a very risky bet to make. But at the same time, uh, at the moment, it's, it's quite a profitable bet to make. But really what you're betting on is, is, is culture remaining unchanged. And the one thing history tells us is that culture rarely remains unchanged. So having, having written the book and thought about the issues and investigated them, um, uh, what are the companies you would absolutely avoid? <laughs> oh, look, I don't give people financial advice, but what I would say is uh, be very careful investing in companies whose whose main trick is is when you scratch the surface, their main trick is is really just a fashion or a fad. There's nothing well water is essential to human life. Bottled water would have to be one of the least essential products on the market. Uh, so uh, as a class of uh, investment, I, I'd say things like that are quite risky. But as for picking turning points for when, when things might turn for them, I, I have no idea. Once upon a time, people thought Coca-Cola would never, would never stop. They spent so much money on advertising. Who, how, could, how, could, how could any generation grow up not thinking it was cool to drink Coca-Cola? Uh, turns out it was quite easy. It was really just a matter of time. So, so these things often take a long time to play out, which is why I'm cautious linking it to investment advice. But when we look at history, we know that patterns of human behaviour change. We know that patterns of economic behaviour change. Uh, and some of those patterns can leave some companies almost worthless, even if once upon a time they were incredibly valuable. Yes, in fact, uh, the richest company in the world, Apple, uh, market capitalization approaching $1 trillion uh, is a fad company, but it seems pretty permanent, doesn't it? Well, that's right. But, you know, in, in the long run, nothing's permanent. Uh, in the short run, people can make a lot of money. And, uh, you know, if, if, if as a society we want to take the incredible prosperity that we've generated in the last century, if we want to take all of the productivity growth and, and rather than buy leisure with it, rather than buy services with it, if, if the number one thing we want to do with all of that productivity growth is, is buy some stuff that we only hang on to for 12 months, we can do that. No one's going to stop us. But the, the evidence says it doesn't 
make people terribly happy. The evidence says it has an enormous impact on the environment. The question I'm asking in the book is, could we radically reshape our society and our economy, not with massive changes in government policy, but just by getting people to realise that repairing and loving stuff might be a, a cheaper and more rewarding way to spend money uh, than, than simply chucking stuff in the garbage bin and going to buy some new ones. Do you come out of this, this process thinking that it would be a good idea to invest in waste companies? <laughs> well, if you're betting that I can't change people's minds, then, yep, go, go hard on waste. Uh, I mean, Australians are generating around 60 million tonnes a year of waste. And, and again, realise that we are spending a fortune to grow food we don't eat, to import, import foot spas we don't use, to buy exercise bikes that are never ridden. And then after they've gathered dust for a polite length of time, we just chuck not just the natural resources required to produce that, but we chuck away all the labour time that's embodied in those products. We literally throw them in the bin. Um, the, the, the strange thing for me is that we usually talk about uh, the sacrifice associated with reducing the harm we do to the environment. My line is the opposite. We have to sacrifice an enormous amount of resources and we have to sacrifice an enormous amount of our time to actually produce all this stuff that, that we say keeps our economy strong. So, yeah, if we continue to waste perfectly good things as a, as a, way, to, uh, as a way to make ourselves happy, then, yeah, I think waste will be a great industry. But in, in the long run, I, I think it's a big bet. I don't, I don't think this version of consumer capitalism, which we've really only had for 20, 30 years at most, I don't think it's going to last for 300. I don't think it's going to last for 100. The question is whether it's 10 or 50 years before we start changing our culture again. You've got, you've got seven things that need to be done, or seven ideas for tackling affluenza, as you call it. Um, and I, I won't get you to go through the seven, but I, I thought that the, the number third, the third one, was um, a bit about what you're talking about just then, which is it's not about denying yourself or sacrificing; it's about saving money. Oh, a absolutely. I mean, research not just in Australia but around the world suggests that uh, people who feel stressed about not having a lot of money readily admit to buying things they don't need to spending money on food they don't eat, uh, to signing up to gyms they never go to. The culture of convenience that we've created is a very, very expensive culture. And the, the idea that a way to make people rich and happy is to save money and not waste it is not a new one. Indeed, it's a very conservative one. The, the idea that wasting money is good for the economy is a brand new idea that's actually quite radical when you scratch the surface. So, yeah, pe people that you know wish they had some more money uh, to invest in shares, people who wish they had some more money to pay down their mortgage, people who wish they had some more money uh, so that they could have a happier life, uh, my, my advice to them would be, well, just look carefully what it is you're spending money on. Because if you're spending money you don't have to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't know... Uh, that is the definition of affluenza. I suppose the this uh, the, the prevalence, I guess, of consumer consumerism, as you define it, as opposed to materialism, 
it's probably just a, a an out an outcome of um, of corporatism. I mean, because it is good for the companies. It may not be good for the society or or economies, but it's good for companies. Absolutely. Oh, I never blame companies for, for for doing what's in their shareholders' interests. If you if you owned a retail store, if you were a producer of stuff, then encouraging people to buy stuff they didn't need is very much, very much in your interest. Um, but what we have to ask ourselves uh, as a society, as a community, and as people that are interested in our economy is, well, where do we really want to be in 20 years' time or indeed 100 years' time? The idea that we strengthen the economy, our economy, that we position Australia in the world by speeding up the rate at which we import stuff that we then throw away is economically absurd. Yes, it creates activity, measured economic activity, and yes, it creates profits for, for the companies that are, uh, that are in that part of the supply chain. But the idea that we strengthen the economy by importing more foot spas is ridiculous. The, we need, I think, to look at the shape of our economy as much as the size we need to ask which parts of the economy are we investing in? Which parts of the economy are we growing? Because some parts of the economy will deliver dividends in the future and some won't. We've talked about good debt and bad debt in, in, public, uh, in public debate. Well, it's just as real in, in, in private decision making. We all know that we can encourage our kids to uh, spend money on going to uni, borrow money to go to uni, or, or borrow money to buy a house, or borrow money to buy shares. We, we've, we, we tell our kids that these are sensible decisions to make, yet we've built an economy in which we pretend that frittering away tens of billions of dollars a year on stuff we don't use won't have lasting consequences for us as an economy. Indeed, we go one step further and say, no, no, wasting all that money on stuff is good for the retail sector and therefore good for jobs. Well, how ridiculous. Spending lots of money on retail goods is good for people that sell retail goods. That's all. That's not good or bad, but it's, it's not, we're not making the nation strong by shopping hard. How ridiculous. So just finally, um, do you think that consumerism is a passing thing? I do. In the long term, it absolutely is. And, and I know that because we've got 7,000 years of recorded history. And, uh, and this is a new idea. The, the idea that, that the leaders of a country would stand up and urge people to go buy things they don't need to strengthen the economy is as new as it is ridiculous. And also, with 7.5 billion people on the earth, we know that only about one and a half billion of them are even close to being rich enough to participate in this game. Now, if, if the other seven billion people in the world try to waste as much stuff as we do, if the vast majority of the world's population aspires to this version of consumerism that we've recently invented, well, there's literally nothing more unsustainable than that. So whether we rein ourselves in or whether other people's adoption of our bad habits reins us all in, time, time will tell. But uh, I think the easiest thing for, for, for people lucky enough to live in a country as rich as Australia, the easiest thing is for us to figure out that that, that garage full of stuff we didn't need didn't make us that happy. And if we changed our ways and other people didn't seek to emulate things that weren't even cheering us up, 
then we'll probably find it a lot easier to, to, to share a world with, a, with the other six billion people. Great to talk to you, Richard. Thank you. Thank you. That was Richard Dennis, Chief Economist of the Australia Institute, and his book, Curing Affluenza, How to Buy Less Stuff and Save the World. Thank you.